0: This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello and welcome to Body Count, a history podcast where we gab about death and disaster through the ages, highlighting figures, single events, time periods, whatever it may be that resulted in someone, or as is usually the case, a lot of someone's dying. We put it all together and hopefully we learn a little something from it. I am your host, Jessica Manner,
1: joined as always by. Oh, I thought you were going to say your co host or Peppercini or whatever you call me now. My Peppercini. I always <laughs> call you my Peppercini now, but I thought
0: I would spare it, but I'm going to do it now, joined by my Peppercini,
1: Kara DiDemizio. And I am excited for tonight because one of my very favorite um, women's history, well, women's podcasters are on tonight. And um, so we have Rachel and Leah from Hashtag History. If you are any bit active on Instagram, you may have seen their stuff, especially if you monitor or lurk the history community on there. So would you ladies like to talk or gab a little bit about yourself before we talk about what we're going to discuss tonight?
2: Yeah, so I'm the Rachel of the Rachel and Leah duo. And uh, like <laughs> you already shared, our podcast, it's called Hashtag History. We're a history podcast that covers history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. So we've covered things like Chappaquiddick, or um, we've covered Jack the Ripper, The Sinking of the Titanic, The Salem Witch Trials. We've even covered the history of Disneyland.
3: Yeah, we needed a happy a happy episode. Yeah.
2: Fair. And that's <laughs> completely
3: fair. Yeah, and, then, uh, <laughs> and and yeah, I I guess it's it's based on perspective, right? Is that why you were making that face? <laughs>
1: oh yes,
0: I'm just, you know
1: yeah yeah perspective <laughs> absolutely
3: yeah.
0: See, I
1: think for her, the idea of Disneyland's a terrifying, horrifying thing anyway, just from the sheer volume of people. Mm-hmm. So yes. <laughs> well, you're not wrong there. <laughs> right. And I just I cool could see her to... like horror. <laughs> yeah.
3: And then another cool thing we do is we have a cocktail segment tailored to that week's episode, every episode. So for example, for the sinking of the Titanic episode, we had a blue colored drink that featured a floating iceberg piece of ice in it. Or um, for the Chappaquiddick episode, we had what we called the Rose Kennedy cocktail. So just a fun little twist, something we, we like to do on
1: each episode. I think that, yeah, that's awesome. And Jessica, I just saw your eyes briefly light up because I know you're going to like lurk their Instagram later for recipes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you can only drink so many
0: martinis or vodka tonics in a day. I need a little bit of, I uh, <laughs> need a change in my life. And as our viewers know, I am no stranger to a drink, especially in the course of recording, although I don't make it a theme, but, uh, you know, it's more like a personal problem, but that's neither here nor <laughs> there. I'm the
1: the sober, wise one, not by well. Choice,
2: maybe though. maybe we mask our personal problem by making it a theme. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and our cocktails are kind of a hit or miss. Uh, most of the time, I think we do well. Probably 80 percent of the time, we have a yummy cocktail, but we've also had some really gross ones. Like one that we had had uh, cherry tomatoes in it. That was a mistake. And basil. It was literally like a salad. (laughs) You learn from it. You
1: learn. Honestly, that makes you like expert bartenders, really. I mean, bartenders don't start out like, you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I appreciate
2: I appreciate the compliment, but I feel very far from a bartender. In fact, the longer we do the podcast and the more cocktails I make, the further I feel from being even remotely professional. (laughs) I I would agree. Not only that, that, that,
0: (laughs) but bartenders make a hell of a lot more money than podcasters do. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. You know, right? It's not very. Yeah. I mean,
1: it also depends on the area because unfortunately, like I live in a part of the country where like people are cheap ass. So in uh, the Midwest, we don't exactly. I mean, the further South in the Midwest you go, the more hospitality there is. But again, generationally, it depends on what people tip, right? Like I feel like millennials and even Xers, to an extent, understand the trouble with, you know, being a bartender or waiter. So it just depends. But it can be a very lucrative gig if you're in a big city, from what I hear, though.
0: Oh, Kara, I thought you were challenging us both to hang up the history towel, throw on an affliction shirt, start doing ayahuasca and go the Joe Rogan route. And I was like, well, you know, whatever you got to do. <laughs> um, uh, that being said, I challenge anybody to spend...
1: Oh, I Challenge I anybody to a spend a day I in an archive. I forgot. I um. See so if you when don't I work at the movie theater, secret fun fact, y'all. I swear to God, I um actually had to bartend for like six months, and I uh, took professional classes and everything. And then I realized, like, I'm too much of a neurotic hot mess to do it because I don't want to like break glass. Um, <laughs> so it didn't work well. Uh, people still tip women because they're women. And, well, I don't know. I got, like, P- the thing about a movie theater is it was right when AMC was phasing in recliner seats. So, right pre-pandemic, when we were all getting cozy in the movie theater, it was right around that time, several mm. years back. And, um like, I would enjoy a cocktail at the movies, but having been the person that served a cocktail in the movies, I'm like, absolutely not. I am not paying <laughs> 16 bucks for a standardized that's nothing special
3: (laughs) yeah that was something I learned yeah no I was just gonna say yeah that was something I learned is I was always like yes I'm gonna get a drink at this movie theater this is a cool new thing now and then I would drink it yeah and then I I was like this is water so that's great the,
1: the tip is they give you literally as minimal alcohol as possible yeah legitimately Oh, see, I go all in,
0: in for a penny, in for a pound. I'm there. I'm doing it. I'm going <laughs> You're all in the for way. Even
1: the <laughs> slight. I'm <ounce-age>. here.
0: <laughs> I'm here. Even the slight ounceage. That being said, I definitely have a cocktail tonight because we are talking about something that I'm um, very excited to be to be chatting about, and very excited that you ladies are here to chat about it with us. What are we talking about tonight?
3: We are talking about the Hindenburg disaster.
0: Yes. (laughs) Excellent. I just got so excited. History excited. The best kind of excited. History excited. Oh, yes. So, in the grand tale of the Hindenburg, where do we
3: even begin? Well, we will begin in May of 1937, which is actually... I guess it would, I guess we could start a little earlier. Okay. For the, let me start for those of you who may not know what in the world the Hindenburg was, if you lived under a rock or just haven't heard about it, it was an airship. And if you don't know what an airship is, um, airships were also known as (laughs) dirigible balloons. Uh, They were essentially giant balloons common for long distance travel in the earliest early 20th century um, which is crazy to think about now uh floating balloons that were like people's way of transportation across the atlantic but i did upload a photo of a dirigible balloon for um for you all to look at and i want to get your resp- your just initial responses what are what are you thinking about when you see an example of this
1: i would love to be in one it's My like a 3 years old reporting I was like I'm three years hyped. old.
0: So I say Indiana Jones, but again, you know, I'm three. I'm not all that with it or, uh, that into it, but yeah, I think I would love this. The relaxation sitting at a table. I feel like <laughs> again, drinking and not out of a mini bottle. having it served to me? I don't know. I'm a big fan. I'm not a yeah. big fan of, uh, who's who's really on the the game at this time on this uh, sort of travel but it is what it is yeah you know?
3: and we'll we'll definitely get to that shortly but you
1: know,
3: <laughs> <laughs> i just saw them. your
1: face the facial expressions y'all made which listeners unfortunately won't see but
3: uh, yeah. our, our eyebrows Spoiler, going alert, all the way up into our hair guys. lines no it's, no it's, Yeah, so for those of you who who can't see the photos, it's basically, imagine, like, a football-shaped balloon. Um, They were, these dirigible balloons, they were often filled with, like, really highly flammable gases, and then they were (laughs) propelled by an engine carrying a comparatively tiny little cabin underneath where passengers and crew members' accommodations were held. I'm not going to go into too much of the shockingly long history of airships, because it's... (laughs) A little, oh, yes, it's a little dry, it's a little dry if we're being honest. Um, but um, just know the first airship designs can be traced all the way back as far as the 17th century, and the first functioning airship, which was a steam powered airship, took flight in the 1850s. So, while helium was known to be the safer gas option for airships, since you know it isn't highly flip and flammable hydrogen <laughs> was unfortunately <laughs> the most common gas used as it was more easily accessible and cheaper but we'll get into all that later.
2: <laughs> yes
0: we will. <laughs> so we're going to
2: we're going to fast forward almost 80 laugh, years. Jessica. Sorry. <laughs> the geek laugh. Evil oh evil. I was like the geek laugh cuz I mean we are talking about history. Oh, that's true. We can all have a geek class then. <laughs> okay. So we're fast forwarding almost 80 years here from when the first airship took flight. And airship traveling was a puffin Just kidding. It wasn't really. But <laughs> at this time, airships, they weren't super common as a form of public transportation. So keep in mind that initially, most airships were built and used for military purposes, like, you know, dropping bombs during World War One. But in the late 1920s and early 1930s, people truly thought they were the future of passenger air travel. The Germans, in particular, tried stepping up their airship game, backing the Zeppelin Company, which was leading in making sleeker, faster, and bigger airships. And alas, it was the Germans that designed and built the Hindenburg. It was originally designed in the 1920s to be a helium-lifted airship, but eventually, I guess they decided the risk was worth the pocket change and hydrogen eventually replaced helium. As with all things, there was a lot of political motivation behind the change to hydrogen. The primary being that the U.S. had a monopoly on helium at the time and wasn't willing to part with it, at least not for cheap.
3: And there was a bonus for using hydrogen. With the use of hydrogen came more lifting power. This meant the airship could accommodate more guests in bigger cabins, more accommodations, and really heavy furniture that otherwise wasn't used um, in airship travel prior to this. Now, I know what a lot of you are probably thinking. Isn't the safety of these German citizens more important than showing off how big and badass of an airship you can build? And... (laughs) I don't know. Maybe we're spending a little more money on, right?
2: Nah.
3: Yeah. That's that's what they they decided because you got to remember the Nazis at this time were flexing and they were flexing hard. Not just in airship travel, <laughs> they were um really forging ahead in like train travel and a lot of other things that I don't know that a lot of Americans know about. Um so they were flexing hard. The Hindenburg was an opportunity to show off their power, their innovation, and their strength.
0: You know, if you give a Nazi mouse a cookie, guys, again, listeners of this show are well aware of what's going on in this time period. And this is not definitely something I've been on a soapbox and screamed about. Yeah, absolutely. They don't care about the safety of German citizens. That being said... It's gonna, it's gonna be a lot of fun. If, if our listeners, I would hope you are, but if you are not, are not aware of what exactly is gonna shake out here, you're in for a real roller coaster of a
3: ride, or a zeppelin,
0: I guess, in this case. <laughs> but uh...
3: <laughs> yeah, so the design for the airship was shifted, and everything became <sighs> bigger, better, and more extravagant, if you will. The Hindenburg is actually classified as the biggest aircraft ever to have flown, measuring by length and volume, which is pretty impressive. There was also an ivory key grand piano in a spacious dining room. I don't know if anyone has ever had to get a grand piano or even just like a, not a grand piano. What are they called?
2: An upright. Yeah, I have, have an upright, upright piano.
3: Yeah, no, they're not easy to move.
2: No, I had to hire people <laughs> to do it because I didn't want to break yeah. my spine. <laughs>
3: Yeah.
0: Literally, so addition- there's a whole profession just for moving these yes! things. Yes.
3: You have to hire a company. It's crazy. So in addition to the grand piano and spacious dining rooms, there was also lug- um, luxury cabins with every accommodation imaginable and even a pressurized smoking room. You heard that <laughs> right? There was a room. <laughs> that That's a great act- idea. Yeah. yeah. They actually pressurized it because... You know, safety was of the utmost importance to them, obviously. Right. Um, (laughs) So it was a pressurized room where guests could smoke their cigars and cigarettes without the concern of igniting a terrifying inferno.
1: (laughs) You know, Jessica, I still like at the time, if you were in that day, I could see you being tempted by that, though, knowing your penchant for cigars.
0: I do. I do indeed have one. And, you know. We are talking about Germany at this time, so bigger was better. Can you imagine the the mustaches and the lengths of those cigars? Which you have to pressurize
2: and. I didn't
1: expect stash talk, but (laughs) well, as we know, not all stashes were uh, big in those days, but
2: ooh, good one.
1: Yeah.
3: So I also have to mention the best, and by best, I mean absolutely the worst part. The outside of this massive airship sported, you guessed it, the Nazi swastika. Yep, Jessica was making the motion there.
1: <laughs> the <laughs> clarifying She was not making the motion in an admiring way. No,
3: no, not the Heil Hitler.
1: <laughs> my mind didn't even go there. <laughs> I was like, oh when God. I realized that it wasn't visual, I was like, oh my God, I better clarify. <laughs> yeah, there's
3: an image I found and showed Rachel. And I think it's actually in the pictures folder where um, it's basically yeah. the Nazi branded airship flying over New York City, which is just a terrifying image, really. Uh, so,
0: again, keep that in mind if you want to start feeling bad about what happens later. You can't feel a <laughs> there. There is a little bit of, oh, well,
3: yeah, you know. yeah.
0: I just think basically it was a floating Nuremberg guys. Yeah. Is and
3: it was what a floating advertisement. A picture. Yeah, a floating yeah. advertisement yeah. for the Nazis. It was
2: horrible. It's just astounding to see this picture of this airship floating over New York City with these huge swastikas on it. It's just it is one of those really crazy eerie pictures in history to see.
1: Same with when you see like marches and gatherings of like fascist sympathizers in that time period, like in the United States, despite knowing, you know, in several years we would be going to war with them. So I agree. Um, This image, for anyone listening, if you look up Hindenburg, NYC, I think you'll probably be able to find it. But it literally looks like, how do I put it? Almost like football branding on there. So like when you see like something advertised like at the Super Bowl, that's what they did splat on this blimp, basically, is put boom swastikas on it. And yeah. that's exactly what Rachel was saying, makes it super cringy about seeing it with the skyline of like New York. Like, yeah. ugh. and again, why Jessica reiterated when knowing that context, you feel a little less sympathetic to what happens.
3: Yeah. So, circling back, it was fancy AF, right? Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> the biggest selling point of the Hindenburg is it was fast. The Hindenburg was actually faster than any other form of travel at the time. It boasted the ability to cross the Atlantic in half the time of the fastest commercial steamline cruise ship. That's a short four-day trip instead of the usual eight at the time.
1: Uh, That's which, not bad.
3: Yeah, uh, to me that sounds miserable. Like uh, yeah, it's
1: miserable in all in <laughs> our standards, but yeah. compared to ship, yeah.
3: But they were, remember, they were living in luxury, right? It was almost like a cruise ship.
0: They've got a floating Birch's garden. They've got Piano Man over in the corner, a pressurized <laughs> smoking
3: room, a full and fucking bar. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it also had all of the comforts of a cruise ship, like I said. But with one surprising benefit, passengers claimed they didn't even realize the airship had taken off. It was so smooth. So no seasickness for these Nazis. <laughs> after her, after completing a single round trip passage to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in late March, the Hindenburg <laughs> departed from Frankfurt Germany on the evening of May 3rd, 1937, carrying 36 passengers and 61 crew members. It crossed over Cologne, Germany, or which I like to refer to as the armpit of Germany, um, followed by <laughs> Amsterdam and the English Channel, and by 2 a.m. the next day, it was already setting off over the Atlantic. <laughs> sorry. Um, it, I hate Cologne. I'm sorry. I had a that is
0: forever... Experience. That's forever in my head now. It's never going away. I'm going to say that to somebody I shouldn't say that to probably in the next two weeks.
3: It was probably just a bad day, but I was not a fan of cologne. (laughs)
0: You know, in the seventh or like the 17th century, and what will be the armpit region of Germany one day. And then it's going to occur to me who I've said this to. It's going to uh, be a lot of fun. So, thank you for that.
3: Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, Like I said, by 2 a.m. the next day, it was already setting off over the Atlantic, and it was really a shockingly uneventful trip over the Atlantic, except for some strong headwinds that slowed its progress a little bit. And sorry, I have so many photos, but I did just want to show one more photo of the Hindenburg over Amsterdam, um, just for another visual. You can see it off in the distance, um, and you can see the canals of Amsterdam, which is pretty cool
1: that is another weird like seeing that Shit's Like so chilling mm-hmm. it is especially yeah. i don't know what it is about the black and white as- aesthetic um but like yeah, yeah. especially yeah. when you know what's to come i guess is what makes it creepier yeah
2: yeah, yeah. maybe that's what it is is that we have that 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 we all have that mutual nine, foreboding right mm. Yeah, but I also think just when I look at this picture, when I first saw this picture, the thing that just stands out to me again is these things were pretty massive. Like just looking at it, like it scales several of those buildings. Yeah, and even from a distance, the length of it. I mean, yeah, totally. That this picture is taken from a distance, and you can see it, it scaling the width of at least two, maybe three of these large buildings.
3: The thing um, that was weirdest to me was seeing how low it flies, which I guess it makes sense. It's not like it's an aircraft. It's not like it can get get super high. But I think I did remember reading somewhere that they actually, over prominent cities, kind of lowered down so that, again, they could advertise their swastika, advertise their cool, innovative new new airship. Um, So they actually Mm -hmm. purposefully... Kind of Just to remind elevation.
0: everybody, it's 1937 in the old calendar year. Shit's yep. gonna kick off uh, hard mm-hmm. and heavy really <laughs> soon. So propaganda is at the
2: forefront. Yep. Yeah. So, it. like Leah said, there were these headwinds, and they ended up making it so that the Hindenburg was about a day behind schedule, arriving at its final destination, Lakehurst, New Jersey right around 7 p.m. on May 6th, 1937. The landing process was one that American airships used quite often, but which the Hindenburg crew had very little experience actually executing. Whether that had anything to do with the disaster is unknown. For this form of landing, they would stop the airship at a high altitude over the landing site. Then they would drop these ropes, they're called mooring lines, down to the ground, which would then be used to pull the ship down to the ground. It apparently added a lot of time to the landing timeline to do this particular maneuver, but it took less ground crew members to execute. So the Hindenburg, it's floating over the landing site with its mooring lines dropped. And it's slowly being pulled down when at 7.25 p.m., some witnesses claim they see a flutter in the fabric covering, indicating leaking gas. And within seconds, because yes, everyone listening, this whole thing took only seconds. The Hindenburg was engulfed in flames and it began to crash.
3: There are... A ton of conflicting accounts from crew members and passengers and people on the ground alike about where the fire actually began. Some said they saw like small flames at the front of the ship. Others said the back. Some say they saw the fire start on the port side. Others, the starboard. When I was doing my research for this, I literally was going cross-eyed from looking at all the different accounts from, from people that were there, all conflicting, totally different things. Wherever that they started, the flames quickly spread, and then the rear of the ship imploded. Because of this implosion, buoyancy was lost on the stern, and which is the back of the ship, I learned. <laughs> and the bow lurched <laughs> upwards while the stern began to sink. So finally, as the airship was descending rapidly to the ground, a series of more explosions took place. If you're going to go out of your way to view any visuals of the Hindenburg, I recommend a YouTube video that we shared on our episodes showing the ignition and the crash of the Hindenburg, all of which took place in mere seconds. That's right. In a matter of seconds, the gigantic airship goes from floating serenely about 250 feet above the ground to a smoking pile of ash in a matter of seconds. It's hard to imagine how any of the passengers survived. The time that it took from the first signs of the disaster to the bow crashing to the ground is often reported as 32 to 37 seconds. So literally less than a minute. And since none of the newsreel cameras were filming the airship when the fire started, the time of the start can only be estimated. So again, it's estimated in the mid 30 second range
0: literally in the time it took to say oh the humanity <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah so i i watched that youtube video and it's just insane to watch um mm-hmm. this airship just you know completely become engulfed in flames and essentially turning to a pile of ashes within seconds it's just it's devastating mm-hmm. okay so the the big question right is how did this happen? And if you are like any of us here, which I'm sure all of your listeners are, everyone's thinking how could this not have happened, right? I mean, they were literally (laughs) floating across the world in a glorified, dressed up, hot air balloon with a smoking room. (laughs) A poison gas cloud, literally. (laughs) But that didn't stop people from coming up with conspiracy theories. At the time, some people, including Hugo Eckner, former head of the Zeppelin Company, did suspect sabotage. Commander Charles Rossendahl, commander of the Naval Air Station at Lakehurst, and the man in charge of the ground-based portion of the Hindenburg's landing maneuver, also came to believe that the Hindenburg had been sabotaged. He even went so far as to publish a book called, What About the Airship, in 1938, that outlined his theory in detail. (laughs) Many crew members, however, denied that this was a possibility, stating that none of them would have ever committed such an act. Other theorists suspected a form of static discharge or possibly even lightning had started the fire. But Max Press, commander of the airship, scoffed at the possibility, stating that on the multiple test flights to South America, the Hindenburg and its sister ship had passed through thunderstorms, were struck by lightning and had remained unharmed. Although there were a lot of theories, such as a puncture in the balloon or fuel leaks, the last one that we're going to go over was engine failure. Yeah.
3: So the engine failure idea was actually presented 70 years after the accident by Robert Buchanan, who was a young American crew member manning the mooring lines down on the ground. Buchanan stated that as the airship was approaching the mooring mast, he noticed that one of the engines thrown into reverse for a hard turn, backfired, and a shower of sparks was emitted. A second crew member stepped forward after this and said he also noticed a blue halo around the tail fin indicating leaking hydrogen from the engine failure. Hugo Eckner, who Rachel mentioned was head of Zeppelin at the time of the Hindenburg crash, rejected the idea that hydrogen could have been ignited by an engine backfire. He stated that hydrogen could only have been ignited by an exhaust because the ignition temperature for hydrogen is apparently 932 degrees Fahrenheit. But the sparks from the exhaust only reach about 482 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not a scientist. I can't verify this. I mean, I probably could if I just did a little research.
1: <laughs> I think it's so interesting that over 65 people survived. Like, I'm just thinking about oh, yeah. how the shit does that happen. Like, I, especially it, after you watch the video footage of it, it's
3: yeah, nearly and how quickly it happened.
1: Like, can I just mm-hmm. say that would have? Can you imagine the fall? Because it was still like 250, like feet in the air. Like, right. yeah, how? Did those people get thrown off? Like, I'm just thinking logistically here. Like, how did they survive?
3: Well, lucky, luckily, like half of the airship was still buoyant, so it wasn't enough to keep it afloat, but it definitely wasn't just like gravity, to, you know, just fully crashed down to the ground. It was still like, you know, the buoyancy from the front of it yeah. was kind of slowing it down as it would. Not that I still think it's crazy that that many people survived, mm-hmm. um, but I do think that probably helped a lot of it.
0: Which is why I suggest for everyone, if you haven't watched the video, please go watch the video because Mm -hmm. everything that these two wonderful ladies are talking about, it's gonna become apparent that it didn't just fall from the sky instantly. It wasn't like Looney Tunes moment where the umbrella they're floating down like goes up in cinders and shit just drops, you know. Yeah. It does. It's not, but also I cannot reiterate enough either just how quickly it's like a like yeah yeah, it's incredible it's incredible to watch Mm
2: -hmm. yeah and i think as history nerds all of us here i mean even before we started recording this episode we all have a general understanding of the hindenburg disaster and so the it comes to the question of why was this such a big deal right why do we all Mm -hmm. know about it Historians believe this event truly changed the course of history as we know it. As we said earlier, airships were thought to be the future of air travel, and with one 35-second crash, that future died, and the airship era was no more. This disaster—oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, I wanted to say, and you're probably about to hit at it, I think the fact that there was so much press on site is why that was, because if I'm not mistaken— I think around seven or eight years before there had been other airship cra- crashes, mm-hmm. but think about it. When we think of like air disaster, like you said, we're all history geeks here. We visualize like the Hindenburg and flames tilted in the air. Yeah. Do we even realize that a British airship had exploded in 1930? Mm-hmm. No. And go, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm just, I was thinking out loud there. So yeah, no,
3: I agree. A, a lot of the pr- like airships crashed all the time. It was super common. I think, like you said, it, it was the publicity surrounding this mm-hmm. and it was the fa- it was the location as well. A lot of the times, air if I remember correctly, airships crashed like in the ocean or, you know, um, it wasn't just this public like this was New Jersey like it was you know it was a very public thing and there was press on site they were there to you know document the super fast passage of the fastest airship around and then this disaster happened
2: yeah I think I think that right there is exactly it is that there were so many eyes on this event and that's why we're still talking about it today So this disaster, it shattered public confidence in airships, and it brought a definitive end to their golden age. The day after the Hindenburg crashed, the Hindenburg sister airship, the Graf Zeppelin, landed at the end of its flight from Brazil, and this was the last international passenger airship flight. It's crazy. Mm. Some
3: airships were used during World War II, Often for recon, scouting for enemy submarines, but the majority of focus on air travel shifted to the less accident-prone airplane. Over time, the manufacturing... I wonder
1: why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because they're not helium-filled. Filled with helium or hydrogen?
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Over time, the manufacturing and use of airships declined even more to leave us with, well, our last photo that I wanted to share with you too. It's called this. <laughs> it's the Goodyear blimp. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, yeah, airships as again. we know
3: them. Yeah, airships as we know them widely today as blimps, and they're used pretty much just as advertising tools for private companies. That's the only thing you see them.
1: Only and time Auto. I might ah. add for any any gamers in there you can literally go up in grand theft auto and rent and hijack um <laughs>
0: a blimp <laughs> so basically they took the giant floating propaganda portion of the hindenburg and then exactly. nixed the passenger travel well you know yeah american ingenuity
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, true. that's true i would argue that was probably an insurance idea Honestly. (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah, Exactly. We're "We're not
1: insuring you, buddy.
0: I'm so excited that you guys, won. brought visuals. I just, everything in me just gets very, very excited. And now we get to share (laughs) all of that. But I encourage everybody, go watch the video. Again, as we've said, it's not going to take up a whole portion. You can get right back to whatever the hell else you were watching on YouTube. It's going to take a few seconds out of your day that you go oh, literally I yeah. see what they mean Yeah, I get it I, now
3: I, I think the video um we looked at it's literally a minute long is that's a if I remember correctly
2: yeah no that sounds right and and when we covered this on our podcast Leah you know she was sharing the story with me and so at that time I had never seen the footage before and watching it just like put everything into context and everything into perspective. And I mean, we've said it so many times on here already, but I highly recommend watching it because it just really having that visual. I mean, it changes things. It makes history really, really real.
1: Oh, I didn't know this, but apparently the Hindenburg was used like as a, well, obviously we know a propaganda tool, but at the, like at the Olympics, I'm just imagining apparently they painted over the swastikas and put like olympic circles on it that's yeah. i, I want to see a picture of this you know um, hmm. let's see well, i don't
0: um, love any of those fields
1: no long. i don't
0: either I'm and they that.
1: also at one point were used for uh distributing nazi flyers <laughs> not shocking <sighs> let's see
3: like what just know. dropping them over germany
1: or something basically yes yeah, yeah. If you you can see some of the flyers if you um, search, apparently.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I just got a visual huh, of a bunch of just Nazis hanging out the side, throwing flyers. Meanwhile, in the background, that baby grand is sliding around. You know, you've got somebody like <laughs> still playing below. it, Sorry. right? Again, I everybody that listens to this podcast knows I'm a child still playing it, still going flyers, going everywhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. Oh, never yeah. mind in 70s they kept the Nazi emblem uh at at that, least part of the Olympics cuz I found a stock photo actually where it yeah, shows Yeah, that's not like,
3: surprising cuz when I think of it's the 1936 Olympics, right? Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. the Nazis were flexing. They were flexing so yeah. hard. Like I, re- I remember seeing photos of like um oh god, what's the the man the African American act like track Jesse
1: Jesse so, yeah,
3: Owens. Like, I'm pretty sure there's photos of him standing in front of, like, a Nazi swastika at the I'm Olympic about, Games. I'm
1: about to send you a picture real quick that goes in hand with what you sent. So I'm laughing because they put the tiny little Olympics in there. Like, the li- little Olympic on the side. Mm-hmm. You can barely see it, but you can see the Nazi emblem big. Like, uh, look in oh. the meeting chat. Oh, yeah, you're telling me the Nazis
0: weren't uh, super into a world games, if you will, or world
1: cooperation.
0: <laughs> they you only know, wanted it in a small space,
1: you know, I kinda wonder if helium the reason like why they didn't opt for like hydrogen, if there were any embargoes going on because I know that there were some restrictions on like what could be sold because
3: yeah, it went. When I was doing the research, and again, a lot of it was political, but some of it was, yeah, like helium couldn't be sold to certain places because remember this is between World War One and World War Two, and I think that Germany was one of those like, still
1: uh, in the naughty zone.
3: It was in the naughty zone, the time zone, right? So at I, this
1: point. <laughs> yeah,
3: so I, I think that was a big part of it, and then it was also. Uh, I think the U S was like the primary source of, um, Mm -hmm. of helium and obviously tensions were running high at this time. So.
0: Correct. So if you add factor all that in and then whatever helium they can get their hands on, I mean, at the time, not well known, Uh, actually, no, that's a lie, but a lot of that's going to be reverted to military use in a rebuilding and a remilitarization and, uh, they got they've got plans even then so again uh, uh, uh crack any history book about the 20th century folks it's going to come up it's going to be that you know it's going to be a it's going to be a talking point at very least um
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah I, I think have to when, say- when
2: we covered this on our podcast i obviously knew generally about the hindenburg disaster but i just didn't realize which i should have right but i didn't realize all of the political connections um Definitely didn't realize there were swastikas on the Hindenburg. You know, it just all—all the, all these ties into World War One and World War Two. It's just mm-hmm. fascinating. This story just has so many details to it. Yes, yeah, and I was it looking does. at
1: some of the colorized pictures um, of like the lounge and dining room, and I'm a little disappointed with them because I was having this image of more bougie. <laughs> I don't know how to. Explain yeah. It.
3: I- but I, I I agree. I they're like metal they're like I look at them and I think like doctor's office chairs and stuff. Thank but you.
1: Okay, that was the same vibe I was getting. Apparently so at the time turned.
3: it was very bougie though. So that's so. the, that's the
0: early modern aesthetic there, Kara. They're going <laughs> they're they're trying to trendset. All right. <laughs> it has to I be mean, clean and efficient. Lines. These are Germans and Nazis. We're talking it looks they're Nazi like they're all Germans in
1: a waiting room waiting to have their teeth yanked. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> that's what it looks like. At least the yeah. um, lounge room looks like, and it has yeah. a world map on the wall. Gosh, yeah, Mangala
0: so lo- would have loved it. Like would have loved it. Um... God, that's horrifying. But these pictures are absolutely fantastic. I'm very excited to share these as well. So thank you guys of for course. providing that. It's going. It's going to give the context, and I think these are going to be some haunting photos. And then when you listen to this and understand um, everything that goes into it, whether it be just general propaganda or, or down to you know trade embargoes and what we're talking about on a post. First war, second war, everything that's kind of coming together and in the context of all the other stories you've got, you've got this little outlying piece of history that is both, you know, a disaster history, but just a broader piece of Mm -hmm. the 20th century chaos that's about Mm -hmm. to unfold. So it's perfect. You
1: couldn't have brought a more. On
0: brand body count story. Let me tell you. <laughs> I
1: on brand body count. I think probably some of our uh, music fans will get the fact that the Hindenburg is on Led Zeppelin's first uh, self-titled album. So that's a nice little image. I wanted to throw that out there for a little pop culture uh, trivia. That's
3: like the second time Led Zeppelin was brought up today. I mentioned in a Zoom call for work that, um, that I I used to yeah I used to call it Ted Zeppelin because I thought it was a guy. When
1: I was a kid, <laughs> I love that Ted Zeppelin. It was shit. Ted
3: Zeppelin, not Led.
1: <laughs> and I just, holy shit, y'all! I just realized why they would have put the Hindenburg on there. And I, yeah. I'm gonna just shrink You
0: right got now there
2: because
0: you got there. I was gonna let you get there. You got there.
1: My God,
2: you and your
0: accountant, Ted Zeppelin. You got there.
1: Why did that took? So like I'm literally was staring at the album cover y'all and I was thinking <laughs> Led Zeppelin, Zeppelin. Oh, shit. That's why. You learn
2: something new every day.
1: What's funny because like I never thought about like if this makes sense guys, I think Led Zeppelin Rock and Roll. I don't even like think of it like as a using Zeppelin if that makes sense. Like I don't think of it as an airship fan. Yeah. Although, that'd be yeah. pretty rad, like a freaking band that only plays on airships.
0: And you thought it was just dad rock, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But what wordsmiths? Oh, man. Ladies, How that was fantastic. It was perfect. Everybody's yeah. going to enjoy that. And not only that, because we all know I'm notoriously lazy and I drink because I have to spend my day in archives and trying to figure out ignition (laughs) points of hydrogen and how hot an engine might burn. I don't have the patience for this. Thank God you do. And we got to talk (laughs) to you. We got to have you on. So it's a win-win for us. Kelly and Emily, by
1: the way, were super complimentary of you. I thought you should. Oh, they're so sweet. Um, Yeah, they're the best. Whining about history, yeah, they're fantastic, too. Um, I wanted to ask y'all, because I hinted this before we recorded, but share some of your history content you've been digging lately. It can be books, podcasts, what have you.
3: I'll hand it over to Rachel. Um, (laughs) She's the the research gal. (laughs)
2: Um, I actually, I just recently, I pulled it out so that I could be prepared and read off the whole title here. I just recently read this book. It's called At the Dark End of the Street black women, rape and resistance, a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa parks to the rise of black power. It was fascinating. Um, just so oh, much, like it, you know what, but, um, this like whole last section, this is how phenomenal the author is. I don't, I don't know if you can really see this over the call. Oh, this is that whole all section, like footnotes? Yes. This is how much research of- is put into oh this. Gosh. So it's like a quarter of the book is her, her notes. Um, it was phenomenal. Like I, I can't recommend this book more because it just reiterates what a badass Rosa Parks was like long, long before the Montgomery bus boycott long before she was working as an investigator for the NAACP investigating cases of, uh, rape of black women and, she just was a badass in every which way, and I learned so much about her and just like the Black Power movement. Um, so again, the the title of it is "At the Dark End of the Street," and it's by Danielle Mc. M- Ooh, <clears throat> I had that cocktail, and a little bit of it got stuck in my throat there. <laughs> the author <laughs> is Danielle McGuire and it, it's a phenomenal book. So that's what I've been consuming in the history industry lately.
1: What about you, Jessica? I know you've been absorbing.
0: Oh, God, help me. I, I want to absorb less. Um, One. <laughs> one. Do yourself a favor. Have a conversation with an archivist this week. If you know any of them. One. They are lonely, lonely people. Two. They have so much knowledge to give. Um, No, I've been... I've just been in the archives as usual books. I'm going to go ahead and plug. I was rereading uh, Robert Johnson's book, the the Lawrence of Arabia book. And God help me. I can't remember, remember the title right now. I've been uh, spending a lot of time in my day life from 1888 to 1919 in the Ottoman Empire recently. So uh, that is one I really enjoyed. He is Bar none, just a fantastic frickin' historian. You can find him and follow him on Twitter. Um I've been revisiting the Silk Road volumes, Franco mm. oh, I hadn't Peter, read them in a while. Yeah, Peter Frankopan. Yeah. Uh uh there's some things in the and maybe in the works there, but that is um
1: like Excuse one me? of those that I've been. What's in the uh, works with him?
0: uh later <laughs> but um that'll that'll get cut um and then <laughs> uh I have just started uh Dr. Philip Ware's book on Dunkirk because mm-hmm. he is probably gonna talk to us next month on the 81st anniversary and wow, uh,
2: awesome. I don't
0: I know that we've been really inundated with dunkirk recently i feel like right and, and I, we all in. feel like and, and one, and yeah but
1: i would this argue is one
0: you don't want to miss um, I would argue because it honestly, is like the decisive new argument and the new like overview anything that you may have missed it's got everything for the rivet counter military historians god bless you folks i wish i could be like you i'm not i'm not i'm not that kind of person to um overall importance talking about propaganda morale it's a fantastic read and then of course uh richard toy gottlieb and um fuck me if i don't say the uh other author i'm gonna feel terrible just uh the 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 munich crisis and again you can hear that episode i just uh finished that up so I've had a wild ride recently. Plus, God help me, guys. I promise I'm going to finish Nancy Wake. I swear to God I'm going to do it. I just get inundated with more and more. She's a woman of endless sources, let me tell you that. So.
1: Yeah. Uh, one book I've been really getting into because I'm big into the Spanish Civil War. And uh, yesterday, actually, so April uh, 14th would have been the anniversary of the Spanish 2nd Republic in 1931, which was hugely progressive, but would have a very fascistic backlash six years after. But um, this book is called Eyes of the World, and it talks about modern photojournalism. So I can think of several of our listeners that would be really into it. Um, it talks specifically a lot about Robert Kappa and Gerda Taro. Um, those weren't their real names, spoiler alert, but they went and um, did a lot of poignant photos that people identify now with the Spanish Civil War. Robert Capa would of course go on to do some of the famous D-Day photos as well. But it's really good. Um, It's not terribly lengthy because there's a lot of photos. It's about 260 pages. Um, Because it's talking about photography, you can expect a lot of it to be breaking down like the imagery of course, and the context of the shoots and different stuff. Um, But it's great. Um, I've been trying to there's a recent biography on Gerda Taro. There's she died in her twenties really tragically. I mean, she got run over by a tank. Mm. Spoiler alert. Um, during the Spanish Civil War, and it was horrific. Unfortunately, please do not Google, but there were images that came out circulating um, that were identified as her. And Ugh. it's just harrowing because she was so young and she escaped like Nazi Germany to, like, fight and want to, like, document what was going on in Spain. And then just to die, like, in your mid-20s like that, like, that's horrific. That's like,
2: devastating.
1: But it's it's she's very badass. Um, somebody else kind of along those same lines as Martha Gellhorn, who's an excellent um, war journalist. And, unfortunately, pop culture knows her as one of Hemingway's wives. But she was actually, I would say, arguably more well written than Hemingway himself in terms of like her career longevity. She um she was actually going out and documenting war into her later years from so we're talking about Spanish Civil War all the way up to the Falkland Islands. Like that's a massive amount of time. Damn and she just that's nutty. I would check out for anyone that wants to learn about her. You could read um, The Face of War by Martha Gellhorn, is the identifiable um, book by her. But there are several biographies on her now, um, namely, especially by Carolyn Moorhead. And she is a person in history that I really wish people knew. And she always, if it, I love the sass you can tell she had in interviews, and she's so candid. and. She just always rude the fact that she was a footnote in Hemingway's life like life. And she actually snuck onto a carrier at D Day to document it, y'all. Hemingway was writing from across the channel about Mm -hmm. it and got the got the main spread of one of the journals. Go figure. But she was tough as grits and a badass. So if y'all well, ever need to did someone, look quite yeah. dashing in a turtleneck, Kara. Actually, to, what's funny is, be fair. it was after T-Day that she filed for divorce from him.
0: It's crazy. But I'm going to encourage our listeners, if you do not and have not listened to Hashtag History, um, because That's all great. of you out there just dearly love when I look really, really stupid Um, And I look really, really stupid every time I go to press play because they talk about so many things that I'm just like,
1: I I don't
0: know. I have no idea, but I'm about to learn today, which is fantastic.
1: (laughs) Yes. And I think what impresses me about your show, um, both of you, is like how well you flow off each other, um, number one. Uh, Number two The other big thing to me is, again, your episode length is so nice. Like that 30, 45 minute, sometimes an hour, like that's perfect. And transitioning to office life soon, that's exactly like the episode length I like to digest. So, um, no, seriously, great work. Real quick, uh, Rachel, Leah, if you want to go ahead and plug where we can find you, um, you know, your website, your social media, Patreon, yada, yada. So, where can we find you guys?
2: Yeah, we're on Instagram and that's where we're super active at hashtag history underscore podcast. And then uh, you can find us on our website at hashtag history dash pod.com. That's where you can find out more about us. Uh, you can listen to all of our episodes from there. You can check out all of our sources. you can check out our cute merchandise. And then we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash hashtag history. So we're, we're on the majority of the social media platforms, and you can listen to us on all the major podcast platforms. And thank you so much for all the compliments about the show. That's very sweet.
3: Yes, thank you so much.
2: No, I love it. Every time i I'm
0: just jotting down topics and taking notes low-key going, "Woohoo, hoo I'm gonna get in a slap fight with somebody today about history. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well that's what when we were coming on on your show, which again, thank you for having us. But talk you know, body count podcast, I'm like, oh my god, that's practically what we do too. Just like when I when I was thinking of suggestions, you know, to to bring to you ladies, like I would say ninety percent of our episodes, because we do focus on you know histories, controversies, conspiracies, yeah, and corruption, the darker side. The darker side, all of them, almost all of them entail like a lot of death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and if not
0: something that's going to lead to a great deal in the very near future, which uh, right. again, it's right up our audience's alley. So I think. This is going to be great. They're going to get this. They're going to get you guys. And they're, you know, take a look at it and be like, oh, this is something I definitely want to get into. And again, if you guys want to pop on over to Twitter after you've listened to this show, don't get in a slap fight with me because I will only have hashtag history to cite on some of these. I'll be like, oh, well, wow.
2: <laughs> hashtag history. That was sad. That uh, means we're going to have to actually get on our Twitter for once.
0: Yes, that might be the only thing I realistically ever like genuinely post to Instagram is my well, actually, and just put hashtag history face. Well, actually. (laughs) Just
1: support the podcast because you guys have Patreon. I just want to throw that out there and force you all to pimp yourselves.
2: Mm hmm. We do. Yeah, we, we have a Patreon where um, anyone that signs up on our Patreon, you can donate as little as a dollar a month. And we over there, um, we post some behind the scenes content. Uh, we have we just started these little bonus episodes ha- called hashtag hangouts that we're dropping every Friday. Uh, oh, so we I have love another that. one coming out soon. And then uh, everyone that is part of our Patreon gets a, a card and a sticker and our infinite love. Yeah, so much love. <laughs> oh, one,
1: one thing real quick, and I think we mm. all can agree on this. If you are enjoying hashtag history or body count pod, one of the quickest and easiest things you can do is seriously go on Apple podcasts or PodChaser and leave a five-star review. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a painless and free way of supporting content you like, and it beats the algorithms folks. So If you want your favorite podcast to keep producing good content, well, that's one of the easiest ways because it encourages everyone involved. And another thing you can do is you can always share like on social media, but body counts more active on Twitter and I know hashtags more active on Instagram. But if you share what episodes really resonating with you and something you
2: learned, that's also
1: fucking cool. Flatly. Yeah, we, we love can, to
2: see that. We we love reviews, and we love seeing people. You know, reshare our episodes on Instagram. We just had someone today reshare a, a cocktail that they heard on our podcast. Uh, one of our listeners made the cocktail tonight to go along with dinner. I was like, that was so cool to see. That's stuff impressive. Stuff like that yeah, yeah, it's cool to see stuff like that. So thank you for for calling that out. Those are free and easy ways to support a podcast.
1: Like You don't have to throw money at
2: podcasters. We
1: appreciate it because we all have day jobs. But uh, we understand, too, especially because we're talking in a post-pandemic time. and Not even post. We're still in it. And we're still in the job market where you might not be able to spare a dollar or two. That's fine. Just let us know how we're doing, what you like. And that that means infinitely a lot to us. And um, body count feels the same way. Uh, Shout out real quick to Victorian Gaslamp because they are always finding our episodes right as soon as they are like uploaded and sharing about what they enjoy with it and major props to that. We appreciate it, especially that you take the time to tweet us and tweet whatever or whoever we're talking about. So I wanted to give some love to that because it's appreciated. Very much so.
0: And, you know, it helps us out and and it always helps us out on the business end as well. Kara's exactly right. So we do really, really appreciate that. And I never say no to a bit of commentary about my sparkling personality. I can tell you that (laughs) right
1: now. Yes, please email her if you have less than nice things, though. I'd rather her (laughs) get the email. Oh, don't worry, Kara. (laughs) they do <laughs> they never lay off of that um
0: all that being said we've plugged you guys you've plugged any anything and everything anything we missed i think kara and you guys you hit all the highlights
3: yep,
2: yep. yeah i think i think you you captured it all thank you again so much for having us on
0: absolutely
2: yep. so i'm just gonna quick.
1: read yeah. yeah go ahead kara you, I saw it before you were about to say it because we're going to quickly plug our stuff real quick. So Body Count Pod can be found. Um, obviously, you're listening to us right now. So continue listening on whatever streaming platform. Um, you can find our social media at Body Count Pod on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We are working on making Facebook and Instagram more active. I promise we'll have to channel our hashtag history and get with the program here. <laughs> um Jessica is in the process of um, revamping our website, so we have exciting stuff for that coming up soon. And real quick, I want to go ahead and say I can be found at Cara Di on Twitter. That is where I am the most active, and I am always happy to talk and um, to any kind of history lover, regardless of where you're at on the spectrum. So if there's anything you're interested in body count covering that you'd be loving for us to talk about send us an email or send me a DM on Twitter and I'd be happy to bring it up with Jessica and we can talk about it um, That being said I also wanted to quickly mention time travel talks so um, two things it's it's a Twitter his, history community that I run and we do periodic um, right now we're actually as we're recording this we're doing a month-long Napoleonic war saga so different questions on Twitter and Instagram on different topics that are revolving and it's been so fun to see people from all levels of history engage, because especially in the Twitter sphere where we're the most active, it's been wild seeing how different people respond to like military history questions versus social political history. And well, Jessica was a little pleased because this was um, in light of it being the 200th anniversary of Napoleon's death this year. So, Mm we, we run different topics, so we've done Ptolemaic Egypt, we've done espionage. We also love to really plug out history creators we like on that community. So seriously, you can also message me on the Time Travel Talks handle. I run that as well on Instagram and Twitter. And if it's a, if you are a history content creator, message either me or Time Travel Talks' account, and I would be happy to give you a promo. I would be happy to check out, read, or listen to your content. and no, I'm not going to charge you. I like doing this for fun. I love discovering people with like-minded passion for history. So that being said, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I also run a Discord community to kind of link the same people. So it could be academics, it could be podcasters and authors and students that love to talk about history, even drop a pet pick in or a book wreck in. And it's a great place to interact, especially if you're Starting out and don't know how to network or don't know, you know, who to talk to in the history community. So please PM me and I'd be happy to talk about that as well. And Jessica, I know where you can be found, but Jessica B as in Bravo and Manor as in the house and not the behavior. Am I right?
0: God, you (laughs) nailed it. Instagram, Twitter,
1: (laughs) clubhouse.
0: You just hit it across all boards. Did you just throw
1: in that clubhouse, you little bougie fuck? <laughs> I mean, <my> <laughs> That's the least
0: objectionable thing about me, Kara. The <laughs> least objectionable.
1: You, you iOS user, you. you <laughs>
0: Apple, <laughs> robot. <laughs> Apple robot. All I right, guys. Well, that
1: something more clever. But um yes, I do have Clubhouse too. We're actually going to try and develop body count and uh, time travel talks communities on Clubhouse. So um, basically, what Clubhouse is, is for iPhone users we have some spare invites if anyone's interested you can like listen in to different discussions happening so think like TED talks but you're just popping in and there's different ones ranging from like blogging podcasting um travel there's a lot of travel themed ones different um archaeology and history ones shout out quickly to Dr. Karen Bellinger um, and past preservers, as she runs one called Archaeology History 101 with Natasha. And it's a great community. And we've learned so much from that. So big shout out because she gave me and Jessica the invites. So we owe her an, an indebted gratitude, if you will. Um, I do expand, I I think it'll expand to Android soon. So that way more users um, can join in because I want that to be accessible. I think any kind of platform, that can bring people together talking about history, archeology, span anthropology, any of that is excellent. So um, if anyone has any questions on what Clubhouse is, you are also welcome to message Jessica and I, and we would be happy to fill you in on that. Um, But I think that's gonna call it a wrap, but I just wanted to quickly say, Rachel, Leah, seriously, y'all were a blast to talk to tonight. It was a pleasure and a treat recording with you. And if there's ever something you wanted to cross over with us, let us know. Um, I was telling Kelly and Emily this, but I think we're all kind of like sister podcasts, right? We have that same nuance to to diving into some of the more um, dark stories with a splash of humor involved. So um, I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think whatever niche we're filling um, I definitely think like Whining About story, Hashtag History, Body Count, and um, Herstory on the Rocks, we all fill this really cool and awesome uh, podcast void. And quite frankly, I just love how many great podcasters there are. So yeah, um, it was a pleasure to have you on. And um, if we can do anything else for you, let us know. But um, meanwhile, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for participating. And we'll call it a wrap.